0: going into these weeks with, with great expectations. If you have a Bible with you, and I do hope that you do, uh, I invite you to open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. We are going back to our series in 1 Peter. We were there in the fall, and then we kind of took a break for for Advent and then New Year's, and then we kind of stretched our New Year's series looking at that, that wonderful prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. And now uh, thanks, Steve, for getting us back into the series last week and we're here uh, again this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is one that's, it's deeply theological, which means it tells us about who God is and what he's done and why that matters and how that applies. It's uh, theological is a word that means kind of the study of God, right? Biology is the study of life. Uh, I was going to say another one, but we're going to, we'll skip that. Philosophy is the study of wisdom, these kind of things, right? So theology is the study of God. It's a, it's a deeply theological passage, but it's also intensely practical. So my hope is that we'll walk through these verses and, and, and see some things together, and you'll not only learn something about who God is, but you'll be able to take that and apply it to your life, like, by lunchtime, okay? That's, that's the goal, that's the challenge, that's the target we're setting for this morning. Now, I don't need to tell you as we're getting into the text this morning that our world is changing really fast. I can hardly even keep up anymore. One of the major shifts, and in the West anyways, in our our Western culture, however and wherever you want to set those Western boundaries these days, it, it seems to be shifting as well too. But one of the major shifts in the West is a move and a continued move towards individualism. It's all about me. Uh, and, and even a, it's been termed a, a radical individualism, to move towards being our own source of truth, our finding and discovering our own source of, of meaning and purpose and of value, uh, to move away from the idea that there may actually exist in the universe uh, an absolute truth, and beyond even that, to to move beyond the idea that there may be some supernatural reality some supernatural entity that Christians call God that is in charge and in control and has set the universe into motion. And so our our culture is moving farther and farther and farther away from that. And I suspect you've noticed there are core beliefs that humanity has held around the world for thousands of years that are under attack in our news, in our schools, in our streets, everywhere. Now there was a time not so long ago in the West where the church was seen as kind of the central community hub. It was kind of the, the 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 entity or the organization that people gathered around, that the the town would gather around. Well, what are we doing on Sunday morning? Well, of course we're going to church because that's that's what we're doing. It was it was the place where if I needed understanding, if I had had trouble in my life, I'd go to the church. If I if I didn't know how to raise my kids, I'd, I'd go to the church. If I if I needed community, I'd, I'd go to the church. And increasingly, that's no longer the case. The statistics keep coming out and they're getting scarier by, by the, the date of how many people mistrust or do not trust clergy and pastors any longer. And the, the bar graph of this is just like a sharp decline. One of the reasons I think one of several. But one of the reasons that I, that I think the, the Western church has moved from kind of the center of society off to the fringes of society where we are more and more today is that once we were the hub, we just kind of assumed we'd stay there people keep coming. We'll just keep opening doors on Sunday and people come. The, the preacher will have office hours and people will just show up. And, and when people run into questions of how do I school my kids or what do we do with relationships and what do we do with money, they'll just come to us and ask those questions. We just assumed we'd stay in the center, but little did we realize how much our position, our worldview, our beliefs have come under attack. Some ways really subtly and really slowly and others really overtly. And we're in the midst of a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. And we have been ever since Jesus walked the earth and before that. We've been in this spiritual battle since Peter wrote this letter. And until Jesus returns, we will be in a spiritual battle. And so we cannot live with a peacetime mentality where we just assume things will go well, where we just casually go through life kind of unthinking and just Just going with the flow, if you will. And so as we jump into this chapter, as we jump into 1 Peter 4, one of the things that we need to consider, and I I hope and trust that that Peter will bring some clarity to us in, is this, how has God provided the defenses for me to still live with the battle of sin going on around me and with me, uh, within me, and the temptation of sin going on around me? How has God provided defenses for me as I still live with the battle of sin going on within me and the temptation of sin going on around me? Let me read our passage for us, and then we'll jump in. This is 1 Peter, read verses 4, 1 through 6, or chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Peter writes this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. There has already been enough time spent doing what the Gentiles, those who don't follow Jesus, doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you they'll give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Look at how Peter starts this section. He says, Therefore, in light of everything that's coming, in, the, in light of the world that you live in the midst of, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Now, if you've been around these parts, you've heard me say this many times, but there are no wasted words in the Bible. And the, the authors of the original text, they were very uh, specific in the words they chose. And there are translators that have brought it from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English, have done the best that they can to make sure the original intent of the original language is here today. And so Peter says, arm yourselves. When do you ever arm yourself? fight any other time when you're under attack and there's a battle raging when you're getting set for war right i'm not going to say god bless you thank you for being here this morning arm yourselves as you go for lunch that's not a thing right i should, hopefully not peter is reminding us that there is danger around us that even though sin and death have been ultimately defeated by Jesus on the cross, we believe that and affirm that 100%, they're still present in the world. The one writer says, I'm afraid that many of us take the doctrine of the fall, that is that, that sin has entered the world. I'm afraid that many of us take the doctrine of the fall not as seriously as we should. And we don't understand how tragically broken our world is. So broken that there's dysfunction and temptation everywhere you look. When I was preparing this weekend and read that, it hit me pretty hard, because I I understand the doctrine of the fall. I look around the world and I see, yes, there's sin in the world. I get that. There's sin not just out there. There's sin in here still. But I think I'm guilty of this. I know I'm guilty of this, of not taking it seriously enough. The problem is, if we don't take the doctrine of sin seriously, if we don't take the presence of, and power of sin in the world around us seriously, then we can go through life really naively, just kind of avoiding or ignoring that we're in a battle that we've been told to arm ourselves for. And we can live with, with unrealistic expectations of the seductiveness of sin. And more importantly, we live with unrealistic expectations of, of, of how... Good, we are at avoiding sin, and so we don't arm ourselves properly. Have you ever said to yourself, "Well, I don't, I don't struggle with that sin anymore." Young Sean might have. That that was a that was a thing for for me a while ago, but I don't struggle with that anymore. I used to. I've been good for a while. I don't need any help with it, and I'm definitely not going to talk to you about it. In my notes here, there's a little thing in brackets. It says freedom session plug. If you've got that sin in there, bottled up, and don't want to talk about it, freedom session is going to be a great place for you to come and unpack that. And as the the speaker promised in the trailer we've shown a few times, it will expose no, or it will give your life no new pain, but we're going to deal with the stuff that's in there. We can't just passively or casually live in a world where sin exists. We need to arm ourselves, and that's what this passage is about. And notice the next thing it says, to arm yourself with the same thinking that Christ had. Here's the good news. We're not just told you're in a fight, a big one actually, so arm yourself. Good luck. We'll see you on the other side, Hopefully. No, no. Peter says, it's it's a battle. This is a fight. You need to arm yourself. Here's the tools. And look at the tools. There's not, that's not even your strength. Look to Jesus. He's the one. He's called us, and God has called us to arm ourselves with clear, precise thinking the way Jesus thought. We call this Christological thinking. Thinking in the way that Jesus did. So we want to go through life processing the world as best we can, like Jesus did, looking to him for his example, and to think biblically about ourselves, about the world around us, and about our life in it. See, one of the things that that is uniquely wired into us as human beings, that, that separates us from the rest of creation, is our ability to think and reason. Now, there's a joke there that some of us do that more often and better than others, but I won't touch that one. One of the things that is unique about humans is that we have the ability to think and reason. And we have to realize that the way that you think always comes before the way that you act. Your thoughts always precede and shape your actions. There is no action that you took today or this week or this year that wasn't based on something you'd already thought through in your mind. If I think... Money is used to get more stuff. I'm going to go buy more stuff. If, if the, way I think about, the, the way I think about relationships will lead me in how I deal with people in my relationships. If relationships are a way for me to climb a, a ladder, I'm going to use people. But if relationships are, are a way to, to help people come to see Jesus and to, to grow in their faith, then I'm going to treat people completely different, aren't I? Our thoughts always proceed and shape our actions. The Bible teaches this, but this is so much beyond what just the Bible teaches too. This is not something exclusive to biblical wisdom. We know this. One uh, pastor and author, Paul Tripp, helpfully explains it this way. He says, human beings don't live life based on the facts of their experience, but based on their interpretation of the facts. We don't have facts in front of us and go. We, we, we take what's in front of us and we, we try to understand it and we try to interpret what that means for us and how we're going to live that out, and then we go. He says you're always interpreting. Some way, somehow, everyone in the room, this might scare you a little bit, is a theologian. Every action you take shows people what you think about who God is, or maybe even if there is a God. Everyone in the room is also a philosopher. Everyone in the room is an archaeologist digging through the mound of his or her existence, trying to make sense out of life, because that's what it means to be a human being. So Peter's call here is to be careful that you're thinking about life in the same way that Jesus did. Look at what comes next in verse 1 and into verse 2. It says, The one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. So here's the first thing from this text anyways that Christological thinking does. It helps us understand what suffering and what hardship is designed to do. See, the assumption that Peter is making here is that if you live in this world, which looks like we all do, if you live in a fallen world where sin exists, you will encounter hardship and pain and hurt and suffering. And if you follow Jesus, suffering will be a part of your experience. It's not a, maybe it will happen. If you're unlucky, it might happen. If you don't pray hard enough, if you aren't good enough, it will happen. It will happen. So Peter's saying is, what Peter's saying is, the first thing you need to do as you think about life through the eyes of of Jesus Christological thinking is what we're calling that right is you need to have a biblical worldview of suffering so we're going to try to capture this in a couple of minutes why was Jesus willing to suffer well for Jesus it was it was all about redemption right and not for him but for us he was the perfect lamb of God he never sinned he never did anything wrong he never deserved what he got, but his suffering brought our redemption. It dealt with our sin. So here, Peter says, whoever suffers in the flesh, that is this suit that we're all wearing, is finished with sin. Now, here's where we have to be careful with reading the Bible and taking out little passages that sound pretty good and then misunderstanding them. Is what Peter's saying here, saying that, As soon as you suffer, poof, sin's gone from your life. It's easy peasy, and all of a sudden, I am holy. As God calls me to be holy, glad I'm done with that. Is that anybody's experience? Not mine. That's not what he's saying at all. Our experience from this week reminds us that's not true, that we are not holy yet. But Peter is referring back to something earlier that he said in this letter, that when you make choices for the sake and for the work of Jesus... When you start to think Christologically and align your life with the way of Jesus, you will expose yourself to suffering. Jesus promises. This isn't new news. He says, when you have chosen to quit living for yourself and start living for God, that's a huge defeat for sin in your life. Because now, all of a sudden, you're saying, it's not about me. And what really is the root of every single sin we could dream of? Hmm. Me wanting what I want, not what God wants. So when I start to say, no, 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 it's not all about me. It's not about my pleasure. It's not about my comfort. I will expose myself to things that are hard, painful, and uncomfortable for Jesus' sake. And when we do that, when I put Jesus ahead of me, it is a big blow to the sin that is active in my life. So Peter says, I I want to live the rest of my time, not for human passions or desires, but for God's will. That's a a bit of a a theology of suffering for us. It's God working in us and and God working through us so that we would no longer be driven by a life of of selfishness and sinful human desires, but we become those who find joy in the will of God. Paul Chip again helpfully says, Suffering is meant by God to pry open your hands, your hands that hold tightly onto your pleasure, your hands that hold tightly onto your comfort, your hands that hold tightly onto things that are not God's will for you. Suffering is meant to to pry open your hands so you would let go of those things, and then with your hands, you would take up the work of the kingdom of God, and that only happens by the dramatic power of His transforming grace. Here's why understanding suffering is important to us. Because in moments of hardship, trial, and struggle, and suffering, we will be tempted to wonder if God has forgotten about us. I don't know if that's true in your past. It's true in mine. When when suffering hits, when struggle hits, all of a sudden we we'll start to wonder, is God really on my side? Why do I have to go through this if, if God's for me? When, when suffering hits, we're, we're tempted to wonder, is God actually good? How can He be good if I've got to deal with this? Why me? It, when, when suffering hits, we are tempted to wonder, is God actually faithful? Will God actually do what He said He would do? I'm not so sure because I'm suffering. Will He actually keep His promises? That's the temptation. Instead, we need to think Christologically about suffering. And we looked at Jesus. Was his life easy? Did it end well, for, well? I guess it ended well for him. Did his human life end well? No, he suffered. And he said his followers would suffer. He said this isn't the absence of God. It's actually an opportunity for us to be reminded of God's grace. This is a a really practical way for us, too, to arm ourselves against the lie of the enemy. In case of, instead of believing the lie that facing hard things means God has abandoned me, we we reach out to God and ask for His grace again to carry us through our suffering. We ask for His grace to, to rescue me from my desires and align my desires with His. We ask for His grace to rescue me from chasing after those things that I want, when I want, how I want, and align my will with His. Instead of wondering if God has abandoned me, we think, what's God doing? What, what is he he's strengthening me for? And, and, and it turns into, I actually want to be a person willing to endure hard things and even suffer for God's sake to point others to him too. The second area of thinking that, that Peter addresses here, first, we have to have an understanding of suffering and to arm ourselves with thinking the way that Christ has. The second area is to understand the temptations in which we all live. Reading verse 3, he says, There's already been enough time spent doing what Gentiles, again, those who are far from God are doing, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. If you've given your life and heart to Jesus, then the old way of thinking, the old way of living, the way the Gentiles live, should be a thing of the past. Should be behind you. You're all thinking, hey, is it all behind me? Hopefully, that's the dream. That's where we're headed for. There's another <clears throat> freedom session plug here. If you want to help deal with some of those things that keep coming back, we're going to deal with the mess. We're not going to be scared of it there. Not that we're scared of it here, but it's it's a different way for us to deal with it. But the reason that Peter is saying that 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 we need to think about these things still is that we're still surrounded by temptations. Even if they are in our past, we're surrounded by them in our world. I appreciate how one writer notes that that these verses kind of lay out for us a three-stage or or three kinds of temptation. The first is to to give ourselves into sensuality. This is the, if it feels good, I'm going to do it. Temptation. If it seems right in the moment, I'm going for it. If if I find my pleasure in food, then it doesn't matter if I'm hungry or not, I'm going to eat. If I have a success, I'm going to celebrate by eating. If I'm having a bad day, I'm going to drown my sorrows by eating. All the things, right? If, if I have a desire for a relationship or, or to, to be with someone else, I'm going to try to fulfill that desire however I want, because I want it. If I want attention, whenever you and I are in a conversation, I'm going to make sure that my story is a little bit better so the attention is focused on me. And on and on it goes. We're just drawn into this. And this is kind of what the the lawless idolatry that he writes about in verse 3 here is. It's going after my desires, first and foremost, at the consequence of all of your desires. And it's serving the idol of self. Now, many of us might think, oh, I don't serve an idol, let alone the idol of self. But any time that we're not recognizing Jesus' position as Lord and leader of our lives, if we take him off that place and put him somewhere else, you and I crawl onto that spot in our lives. Our life becomes doing what we can to satisfy our cravings. We need to be really realistic. that temptations are around us everywhere. One writer said, there, there's such insanity in our culture, in our moment. You can barely listen to the radio, look at a magazine, or log on to social media, or watch TV or a movie without your morals being assaulted. And so we need to be wise and humble when it comes to temptation. We need to be willing to say, I wish these things didn't tempt me anymore, but God, they do help. Another spot for freedom session plug here to deal with the things that lead us from God towards Sin and away from God. Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. Right here, we'll be here. Then there's the added pressure, just this this pressure of getting what I want because I want it. And Peter says, those they that aren't following Jesus, they're they're surprised when you don't join them in these things. So this temptation isn't just it's just uh, not just me that's tempted. It's not just a personal temptation. It's it's not just a spiritual thing where it's this battle between do I follow God or do I do I go my own way. But it also becomes communal and societal. Standing up for what Jesus calls us to is getting increasingly difficult. It's like trying to trying to swim upstream as a fish, right? The the salmon as a return. It's 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 hard to live differently in this culture. It's hard to stand up against the flow of culture and where it's going and and what it values and what those what those values are morphing and growing into. It's hard to not just go along telling the same kind of course stories and jokes with those who don't follow Jesus yet. It's it's hard not to watch those shows and movies that everyone's talking about. We, I mean, I haven't watched it, so I don't know about how many times in our, in our news lately have we said, have you seen this scene from The Last of Us that was shot here, right? All these people are like, oh, that's my house. That's my apartment. That's the engine bridge. Oh, we're on TV kind of thing, right? But is it actually a show that will be good for us? Like I said, I have no idea. I haven't watched it. But it's hard not to to, to listen to that music, man, this record won a Grammy. It should be good. I should be listening to it. This movie won an Oscar. I should watch it, right? But is it good? Is it pointing towards Jesus, or is it drawing me away from him? It's hard not to just move in the direction the culture is going, even when you know it's wrong. Then there's a third part of the temptation. It's at the end of verse 4, and, and Peter says, you know, they, they, they're surprised when you don't join them and Then they slander you for not joining them. They make fun of you for not joining them. They say all kinds of mean things about you. Not only is it hard to stand alone, but when you do, you open yourself up to, to misunderstanding and mockery and it hurts, it does not feel good. God has, has wired us to be social creatures. God has, has wired us to want to be together and to be in community, and whenever those social connections are are severed, we feel it, whether they were good or not. We're still paying there, right? So let me ask you this: I'm going to ask it now, and hopefully it's the question you think about for more than the next couple of minutes, but you return to it. Are you thinking wisely and carefully about the temptations that are everywhere around you? Are you thinking wisely and carefully about the temptations that are everywhere around you? Now scripture tells us that when Jesus walked the earth, he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. And I know that our natural tendency is to say, yeah, but Jesus didn't have an iPhone, tempting him every day. And that's fine. If we we want to split those hairs, we can split those hairs. what's, What's the temptation of the iPhone? is to look to something other than God for our meaning, purpose, fulfillment, pleasure. It's the same thing, package different. Maybe it's a little more in our faith, sure. But Jesus walked the earth, he was tempted in every way as we are and was without sin. That means he understands. There's a massive campaign, especially in the States, uh, put on by churches on, that, that he gets us, right? There's no situation that you and I could get ourselves into but Jesus doesn't understand. So are you thinking wisely? You and I can try to, to hide behind a, our cleaned up Sunday selves too. That's easy. I put on my nice jeans for you on Sunday. usually put on a sweater instead of just a t-shirt. To come in and look like I've got it sorted out, figured out, everything's going well. Let me tell you, I don't have it sorted out. I have some ideas. The Lord is good. I don't have it figured out. Everything's not all together. But as I said to someone in between the services, man, I need this message more than ever. When these things come, then to Jesus. He knows, He's been there. Peter wants us to understand what suffering was designed to do. We talked about wants us to understand the present temptation that we live in. And then the third thing he says, he wants us to understand the reality of the coming judgment. Look at verse 5. Someday they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. So we believe that we, we serve a living and holy God who is the very definition of truth and righteousness and justice. And that time is marching forward to Jesus' return and God's justice coming. There will be a day when when our faith, when our suffering, when our obedience, when standing up for the hard things, will be vindicated by His justice. It's coming. This is the hope that we have, knowing that that this story we're living isn't just one of being stuck and suffering when we're going through the motions, just trying to, to walk through some sort of meaningful life that's out of control. But instead, what gives us hope is that that we're a part of His story and that one day justice will come. And some days, that hope for that one day will be all that you have. That'll be it. The promise that, that, that God will deal with every wrong that's ever been committed, that evil will be finished, sin will die, and righteousness and truth and justice will reign forever and ever and ever. Some days that will be your only hope, but it's enough. There's one last thing here in verse 6. It's a little bit confusing, but we're not going to dodge it because it's confusing. It is it is important in helping us understand the gospel. Peter writes, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, and they might live according to the Spirit, uh, live in the Spirit, excuse me, according to God's standards. What he's saying here is the gospel was preached to those who have since died, and and they will live by the Spirit of God, which is like, okay, how do we preach to dead people? But remember, we're not just looking at one little letter here. This is a letter in the midst of a library that tells a grand story of God's work. If we go back to the very beginning of the story, when Adam and Eve sinned, what was one of the major consequences that came into the world? Death. And so every one of us now Faces the reality of a physical death in front of us. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in 40 years, 50 years. It doesn't matter. But the hope of the gospel is that there is a life on the other side of that. That physical death is only one thing. We we really do believe in eternal life. That this life isn't all there is. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if this is the only life we have, if, 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 if it's only this life that we're following Jesus, then we should be pitied above everyone else. We should be uh, most miserable. He's saying uh, the life that we're called to, to, to follow Jesus, if this is all there is, if the statistically 82 to 86 years that we have on this world is, world is all there is, then why live for anything other than ourselves? It doesn't make sense. Why not try to grab hold of everything to make my life is comfortable and as easy as it is at the at the expense of everyone else if this is all there is but this isn't all there is and we cling with with both hands onto the gospel promise of eternal life that jesus came that he lived a perfect life that he he died on the cross shedding his blood for your sin and for my sin and that he rose again conquering death itself so he would give us a gift that seems impossible to our little tiny human brains eternal life with him forever and so in those moments when you are being mocked for your faith in those moments when you're struggling with temptation in those moments when you're misunderstood in the moments where you've suffered in ways you've never thought or never wanted or never wished anyone would ever suffer, we can say to ourselves, this life isn't it. This life isn't it. Jesus promised eternity and I'm with him. And I will live beyond this forever and ever and ever. And I know that seems really easy to say when you're not in the midst of it. But it's That's all there is. So let me ask one last time for this morning. Are you thinking biblically about the world we're living in and the suffering that comes? Maybe one really, I I promise it will be practical, maybe one really practical step that you can take today, maybe for the first time, maybe again, is to remind yourself when hard times come, it doesn't mean God has forgotten about you. Maybe, maybe that's your take-home for today. When things get hard, when suffering comes, God is still with me. Are you living today with one eye on the tomorrow that will come with eternity? Let me pray for this. Jesus, thank you for this morning.